And let's take our Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 40. We're continuing in our series through uh, the book of Genesis. Uh, the latter part of this uh, book is dedicated to uh, a lot of focus, I should say, on what, what's happening with Joseph, the son that had been sold into slavery in Egypt. So let's take Genesis chapter 40. I'm going to read the whole chapter and encourage you to follow along in your own Bibles. It will help you, especially in lengthy passages like this. It's a good story. So um, and even as I say that, I realize I'm, I'm, I'm drawing a distinction between one part of the Bible and the other. It's, this is good like something's not. Well, no, it's all good. Uh, but this is particularly gripping, I think, just because it, it, it sets up what's going to happen next. But chapter 40 of Genesis, let's hear God's word together. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord and the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed. The cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in the custody of his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We've had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph, and he said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches, and as soon as it budded, the blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift you, lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cup bearer. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into this pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh lift up your head from you. And hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all of his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. This is God's word. I invite you to join me in a prayer 
I'm going to ask for the Lord's help. Father, we prayed a moment ago that you would change our hearts. We know that that happens, Father, when we encounter the living and active Word of God. That's what lies open before us. It's your truth. And it's useful for us, for teaching us, for rebuking us, for correcting us, for, for training us in righteousness. So, Father, what we're asking for in this time is that, as this word is proclaimed, that there would be something more than the words of a man, that we would hear from you, that your spirit would plant your living and active truth on our hearts. And, Father, I need grace to proclaim faithfully, to be true to this word. So, God, would you grant in this time all of us ears, Minds, hearts, disposition before you that is ready to hear from you, ready to listen to what you have to say. And change our hearts. Fill us with gratitude and help each of us in our minds and in our hearts and in our activities to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ as a result of it. And we ask all of it in his name. Amen. serving a life sentence at Shawshank for a crime he did not commit. Andy Dufresne had hopes for his future, which is surprising. There's a scene in the movie where Andy is, is painting this, this visual picture for his friend and fellow prisoner, Red, and he describes this uh, Pacific coastal town in Mexico called Zuantaneo. And, and as he tells it, you can imagine uh, the, the setting. He describes a hotel, a boat to take his guests fishing, and the, the gentle zephyr winds. Well, Red, in listening to this, would have none of it. He doesn't want false hope. But for Andy, as he tells it to Red, there are only two choices. Perhaps you remember the line, get busy living or get busy dying. Of course, the, shedding, the setting of, of, of Shawshank, that's fiction. And, and from an eternal perspective, Andy's vision is really rather small. But the choice he declares, live or die, that's, that's not fiction. That's something that, that we all have to face, and that's something that, that Joseph had to face. Is he going to get busy living for the glory of God? Or is he just going to give up? Recall that Joseph was in prison because of a false accusation. He had been sold into slavery by his brothers from the land of the Hebrews, as he describes it, sold to some Ishmaelites, and he was traded to this one Potiphar whose household he served faithfully. Potiphar's wife set her eyes on him. She falsely accused him of attempting to laugh at her, and that's euphemistic language for an unwanted sexual advance. And now he's in prison. And what's, what's he going to do with his time? What's he going to do? Well, from the end of chapter 39, we discover that he has stewarded that time well. Because of the favor of the Lord on him, he has, he has been faithful even in captivity. He has been a very faithful prisoner. He's been entrusted with responsibility there. And while Joseph kept 
busy in prison living for God's purposes, in that prison time, he would learn some very important lessons. And, and I want to highlight these for us this morning. These are lessons that the Israelites would have to learn again and again. But they're also lessons that help us if we take them to heart. You see, as, as Christians, we don't want to get busy living, doing the wrong things or pointless things. And I think this story helps us with that. But here are the lessons. I'll give them to you up front and we'll, we'll go through them as, as we go. The first lesson, people are fickle. People are fickle. Second lesson, God's word is sure. And the third lesson is just a simple application. Be patient. Be patient. Well, first, people are fickle. Now, I think we get this, that it's a frustrating thing when people are fickle, when they are unpredictable. The, uh, per, the abusive husband whose, whose moods shift from contented to rage, rage with little warning or logic. Or the boss, perhaps you've been in a situation like this, who, who rails at you for seemingly no reason. And institutions can be fickle too. Government institutions, there's so many involved in that. I, what came to mind in terms of fickleness, if you've ever encountered a fire marshal, and I mean no disrespect to our state fire marshal, but we have been going along for some time with certain things in place that they approved, and then they show up another day and they say, well, that's not right. It's like, well, it was right the last time you were here, but now it's not right. I don't blame them, because somewhere in Lincoln, people are writing stuff down and saying, this is what you got to do now. And it feels like we don't know what's happening. It's, it's fickle, unpredictable. And I think most of us, if we're accused of being fickle, would find it, find it deeply insulting. Well, in our story, we see that Joseph encountered the fickleness of people. First of all, Pharaoh was fickle. And I, I, I don't know how else you can explain what unfolded, what happened, except that he was fickle. Uh, the, this fact, though, did certainly provide an opportunity for Joseph. That's another, really, an illustration of God's providential care. But in verse 1, in terms of the fickleness of Pharaoh, we learn about these officials in Pharaoh's household, the chief baker and the chief cup bearer. And I, I take it that these men were, were like uh, Pharaoh's executive chefs, I guess. They were responsible to oversee whatever food was placed before him. So a cup bearer would perhaps be a wine taster too, in case somebody attempted to poison him. You taste it first. If you don't die, I guess Pharaoh can drink it. The bread... Is it good? They, they taste the food. Food is important, of course, and, and who doesn't like to enjoy what they eat? But for some reason, the, the king of Egypt became angry with them. Again, we're not told why. What did they do? And I tried to imagine the scenario, and I, I got kind of silly in my mind, but I wondered if the, the baker brought him rye bread instead of whole wheat, or if the bread was stale. Maybe the cupbearer, you know, maybe brought the wrong vintage or he asked for a cab and he got a Merlot. I don't know. I mean, it's just like, what's going on with this? But it seems like Pharaoh is fickle. It just simply says that they committed an offense against their Lord, the King of Egypt. Well, verse four, verse four in our text tells us they, these two men, they had continued for some time in custody. So a period of time had gone by. This was enough time for, for Joseph to, to learn their general dispositions. He, he got to know these men and what they were like. And so now they're in Joseph's care. He has responsibility in this, in this household, this prison. 
And these men have dreams on the same night. And Joseph finds out the next day that they're troubled. That's verse 6. Now, of course, this is interesting to me. They had been thrown in prison because Pharaoh was angry with them. So if you can imagine their situation, they used to have a place of significant responsibility. And now they've been brought to nothing. And of course, they are troubled. But they are uniquely troubled. After some time, something was different about these men. And whatever their offense had been to Pharaoh, their plight, and now the situation with their dreams, became an opportunity for Joseph's own hope to be fulfilled. So first, Joseph hears the cupbearer's dream. And we won't go over the details of it. You can see it in 9 through 11. Joseph gives him the good news. He's going to be restored. He's going to have his position back. You will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand again. Now, of course, the chief baker hears this, right? But before we get to that, Joseph sees in this exchange an opportunity. The, the cupbearer is going to go back to Pharaoh. And it occurs to him, you could do something for me. Verse 14, he says, remember me. When it is well with you, he gave him a good interpretation. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. Now, it's really a simple request, isn't it? How difficult would it be for this official in Pharaoh's household to, to tell the story of his own deliverance and how Joseph had revealed it? Hey, king, remember that time you put me in prison and I found out I was going to be released before it happened, Joseph told me. Not only that, but he could have told Pharaoh about how Joseph had been so faithful as a, as a kind of a prison manager, even while in captivity, entrusted with responsibility. So Pharaoh was fickle, but it turns out the cupbearer is fickle too. He received that life-giving news from Joseph. While the baker received the bad news, the death sentence, and you can see the baker's dream in verses 16 and 17. Joseph's interpretation follows. I was thinking about why do we get the baker's story? That, that news certainly didn't benefit the baker. He just found out when he was going to die. But I think what it did was it sealed in the mind of the cupbearer that Joseph's interpretation had come true. So, again, I'm speculating around this. If the cupbearer was restored without the baker's dream, he might have concluded it was just some sort of fortuitous coincidence. Well, he told me this and whatever. But the fact that one, his prison mate, his cellmate, died as a result of a dream on the same night, that must have sealed it in his mind. This is dead serious. This guy has divine knowledge. Between the dream and the fulfillment, three days, as we see in the story, both are summoned by Pharaoh. The cup, baker's, the cup bearer is restored. The baker is hanged. In verse 23, we see how fickle this cup bearer is. And again, I, I know that the text doesn't say he said, yes, I will remember you. But how could he not? Verse 23, yet the chief cup bearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. He forgot him. Now, he forgot certainly doesn't mean that the, the, the story or the event slipped his mind, that the memory was somehow lost. No, he would not likely forget 
the fickle anger of Pharaoh and how his life was spared and how the baker was hanged. He forgot, meaning he chose. He made a decision not to bring it up to Pharaoh. And why, we don't know. Now, initially, it seems to work to Joseph's advantage that Pharaoh was fickle. <laughs> but then it looks like the unreliable cupbearer foiled that. I think we know this. People and institutions can be fickle. They can be unreliable, erratic, unpredictable, indecisive, and capricious, right? That can happen. Why? It is because of sin. Fickleness is a, it's a combination of poor judgment, unjust actions, selfishness, and an individual chasing after immediate pleasure at the expense of someone else's well-being. And let me just say, as an aside, let that not ever be said of those of us who belong to Christ. Let it never be said of us, he's fickle. By the grace of God, we, we must grow to become like God in character. It says this in Ephesians 5, that, that we are to be imitators of God as beloved children. We are to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. So what that means, if we're walking in love, it means we should be wise. It means we should be just in our ac actions. It means we should be sacrificing for others, not being selfish. It means we need to be reliable. We come to work on time. We do the job we're paid for. We follow through in our commitments. The kinds of people that keep our word. We don't make rash commitments. We're careful about our commitments. James, in his letter, quoting, quoting Jesus, he wrote this, let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. It's just a reality, harsh reality, that people can be fickle. Life is often unpredictable and fickle too. But one thing is true. God is not fickle. God is not capricious. In fact, the very proof of his character is the next point, and that is this. God's word is sure. God's word is sure. Now, I wanted to illustrate in a particular way. So, so follow me in this, this kind of mental picture. I don't know if you've ever experienced utter darkness. Like, you know when there's like a complete, it would have to be a complete power outage in the city. Or, or you get out into the wilderness, right? But on that night, you'd, you'd have to have a completely overcast sky so that you can't see anything because even in a dark night, there's still stars and the moon and you can navigate your way. But imagine that that's completely overcast. Now add to that an additional horror of losing your sense of hearing, losing touch, losing your smell and taste, and any of our senses. I think that would be very disconcerting because 
if you're in that situation, you have no sense of light or dark, you have no, no feeling, no taste, no smell, no touch, it's hard to know what is even real. Because our senses are, are a reference point that help us understand what is true. They help us understand what is reality. Now, I illustrate that way because in a greater sense, that is true for God's word, for the scriptures, for the Bible. The Bible is a reference point for all that exists, for understanding what is good and what is not good, what is true and what is not true. That is why it is sure. Now, you may be wondering, why illustrate this way? When the cup baker and, uh, sorry, the cup bearer, I'm conflating those, when the cup bearer and baker told their dreams, Joseph said this in verse 8, do not interpretations belong to God. Now, at the risk of making much of this, I thought deeply about that very sentence. Do not interpretations belong to God. Implication is all interpretations. Now, that's a true statement. And Joseph is perhaps speaking just about the dreams. But that statement is true way beyond the dreams, way beyond the experience of the two men. That statement is universally true. Interpretations belong to God. That is a statement that has massive and eternal implications. I want you to ponder this with me. Interpretations, or to say it another way, understanding of all things belongs to God. That understanding, that knowledge belongs to God because God is the source of all that is. He knows all things. Because he's a source, he knows it all. He can't not know. And so because God is before and above all, he is in himself the eternal and unchanging reference point for all that exists. You see, apart from God saying, let there be, there would not be anything, right? We acknowledge that. Genesis 1, John 1. So without God explaining what he has made, nothing can make sense. So without God's word, we cannot know what is true. And without God's word, we cannot know what is not true. And, and listen, even people that deny God depend on this fact, though they don't even know it. Now, Joseph said that all interpretations or that interpretations belong to God. And he's going to give an answer to these two men about the meaning of their dreams. Now think about it. Those dreams didn't exist without God giving them. So the dreams of the men and the interpretation of those dreams by Joseph, those are both part of God communicating something. God is saying something true. Through Joseph, God is interpreting something here specific. But God is the interpreter the bearer of knowledge, the source and the reference point of all things for all eternity and always will be. And that is the very surety of God's word. It's the scripture's absolute nature is something that, that absolutely fascinates me. I think deeply about this all the time. I wonder if it's a for those of you a little geeky, <laughs> I even wonder if this reality is, is philosophically necessary. That is to say, self-evident. 
You see, for, for, there, for there to be anything, there has to be an idea of it. And for anything to be actualized, that is to say, brought into existence, it needs to be defined. Words, God's words are statements that make that definition, and they are statements with power. So when humans, when you and I make statements about anything, we are using language, words that have an ultimate reference point in that God spoke first. It's logic, language, definitions. These can only be because God spoke first. So when we talk about the word of God and its power, understand it's not just the book bound here. It's the fact that God speaks and nothing is without God speaking. And I think even unbelievers get this. I, I heard a quote. This is a very popular author and clinical psychologist. He's a philosopher and lecturer. He's not a Christian, but I wonder, I marveled at how he landed on this. Perhaps you heard of this guy, Jordan Peterson. Here's what he said. I was listening to this interview, and it just floored me. He said this. He had just visited a, a Museum of the Bible in D.C. He said this about the Bible. The Bible is the precondition for the manifestation of truth. The Bible is the precondition for the manifestation of truth. That's fascinating to me. How did an unbeliever come up with that? We wouldn't have existence except for God speaking. And we don't have a reference point for anything unless God speaks. So something is true or not true in as much as it agrees with what God has declared. God owns that. That belongs to him. And when we have the word of God, I, I take it that what Peterson says is true. He says the Bible is the precondition for the manifestation of the truth. The word of God is the precondition for the manifestation of truth. It is true. That is why the word of God, as it says in Hebrews 4.12, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That is why man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That is why God says, my word that goes out from my mouth shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. That is why the sacred writings, the scriptures, the word of God are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That is why the gospel, that is to say the good news of God's word, is the power of God for salvation to everyone believes. Does God, is God not the interpreter of all things? The Bible is unlike any other so-called sacred book. You know, in other religions, Islam, for example, if you deface the Koran, Muslims get very annoyed. And in some countries, you could be put in prison, even for life, I read. Now, imagine if, if someone working against Christians in our time, confiscated all the Bibles and burned them in the fire. Now, I'd be a little annoyed because this Bible cost a lot of money. It's got a really nice binding. 
but I wouldn't be devastated. It's the word of God. You can throw it in the fire. God will make it come out. This happened in the Old Testament. I don't know if you remember the story in Jeremiah 36. Jeremiah wrote down a prophecy, read it for the king Jehoiakim. After it was read, the king burned it. And so what did the Lord do? He told Jacob, get another scroll and write some more words down. And he added many more to it. You can't make it go away. The word of God is living and active. And so even if they burn every Bible, God will find some way to get his word out. Now, I'm not suggesting, I'm not going to even be comforted if somebody wants to burn the Bibles, but the point is, it's the surety of God's word. And we don't revere this, this physical book like other religions do. It's just ink and paper. It'll wear out. You might have to replace it. Okay. But we revere the word in the book because they are breathed out by God. And so that's why we, we, we sing the word. That's why we pray the word. That's why we preach the word. That's why the word guides our worship. Because the word of God will accomplish the work of God. It is the one sure thing. So, Joseph faced the fickleness of people. How do we face the fickleness of people? How do we face the uncertainty of life? What's the one thing, the one unchangeable eternal thing that you can count on? I think the answer is implied. We visited with a couple of our oldest friends when we were back in Canada. Uh, they were in our wedding, Dieter and Cheryl, both in our wedding. And he's just about to begin his uh, second round of treatments for his blood cancer. And it's been an extraordinarily difficult season of life. But his wife, Cheryl, she was saying to us at dinner how sweet the word of God has become to her, how, how much she has valued it, how it has strengthened her. It is the one sure thing as they're going through this storm. Now, we may not be in a literal prison living as we are in this day and age, but we are living with weakness. And when we're young in the faith, we live with weakness of faith. And we're, when we're older, we may not have the weakness of faith, but we get the weakness of body. And even if you are strong in both faith and body, like all people, we are still imprisoned by the constant battle against the pull of our own corrupted flesh. We face this every single day. As the Apostle Paul lamented in, in Romans 7, he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? And his answer is our hope. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we know about that because God has declared it in his word. Jesus Christ, the son of God, offered up his own life on the cross to take the eternal consequence of our sin. He did that. He rose again, defeating death. And he gives us the guarantee of eternal life to all who trust in him as Lord. He is our rescue from these bodies of death. And as I said, we know this because of the good news of God's word. It is the one sure anchor for our souls. And everything we see and experience may go away. And it will. But the word of God, that will never go away. As Peter says, all flesh is like grass. And it's glory like the flowers of the glass, the grass. The grass withers. And the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the good news that was preached to you. Sure thing that we have is God's word. Third, 
What do we do with this? Be patient. You, you need or want something, but you don't have it. Yet you expect it at some point in the future, you hope for it. The, the two words that describe this tension are hope and fulfillment. Hope and fulfillment. And these, these two words, the experience of that, are separated by a thing, a reality. It's an uncontrollable truth, and that's time. And when time stretches long, hope is tested, isn't it? As fulfillment might seem, it might seem elusive, it might seem even impossible at times. Artists and and human experience confirm that anticipation is making me wait. Waiting is the hardest part, and I may just be sitting at the dock of the bay wasting time watching the tide roll away. Right? Everybody gets it. There's hope and fulfillment, and a long time in between tests that hope. So how do you wait when the gulf between hope and fulfillment seems excruciatingly long. And we can feel now Joseph's pain in prison, right? You can rail and complain. That accomplishes nothing. Or you can be patient. That seems like an obvious lesson. Just be patient. Be patient. But let's look at Joseph. Joseph pleaded with the, that cupbearer to remember him to Pharaoh. He explained his ordeal, explained the injustices done by his brothers and the injustice of a false accusation by Potiphar's wife. Verse 15, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me in this pit. I've done nothing to deserve this. Help me. I don't deserve this. Help me. Get me out of here. Remember me to Pharaoh, please. He had been in prison for some time. He longed for things to be made right. And the, the cupbearer seemed to be his opportunity. But verse 23, we, as we already read, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. And that takes us to the end of the chapter. And of course, we can read ahead to find out that the, the cupbearer does come through, but that's two whole years. In the grand scheme of Genesis, that doesn't seem like a very long time. But if you're in prison unjustly, two whole years. Seems like a long time. And right now, Joseph is at the very same place he was before the baker and cupbearer showed up. And he's got to be wondering when his own dreams will be fulfilled. When is that day when his hope will be satisfied? When will he be elevated as, as the Lord revealed to him in his own dreams? When will he see his brothers again and be honored by them? Now, Joseph has a choice here. He can give up and die or simply get Busy living for God's purposes to unfold and be patient. Now, we've all heard it. Perhaps you've said it. Patience is a virtue, right? Well, of course, it is virtuous because it is the outworking of the Holy Spirit in our lives as those who have trusted Christ. Patience. If you look at Galatians 5, patience is right up there with love, joy, peace. Patience. So Joseph had to be patient. Now, the Bible says plenty about this virtue. When standing on the side of biblical truth puts you at odds with the culture, 
And brothers and sisters, that's going to happen increasingly. When standing on the side of biblical truth puts you at odds with the culture, it promotes ideas about gender, marriage, sexuality. God's word says, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. When evil prevails among those who govern us, when people and corporations prosper by appealing to human fleshly desires, whether those are for cravings of power or just indulging the flesh, the Bible says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret yourself not over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Oh, how often are we tempted to fret ourselves over the one who prospers as a result of doing evil? That's Psalm 37, 7. When your heart aches for Jesus to return, and if you belong to the Lord, if you truly belong to the Lord, your heart aches because you want to be finally released from the moment-by-moment -moment battle against your own evil cravings, don't you? So when you long for that, the God-breathed word exhorts us, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, and it until it receives the early and late rains. The illustration, look, the farmer's planted. It takes time to grow. God's purposes have been planted. They're germinating, and they're starting to grow. Wait patiently. It, it does no good in the midst of this to pretend that it is not difficult at times. And I want to say this, it's okay to lament. We have some psalms because they are laments. Psalm 13 is one example. It gives expression to this kind of sanctified complaint. It begins, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? What lamenting does, and, and if we use the psalms for that, what lamenting does is it reorients our hearts away from the corruption that assaults us and tempts us. And it reminds us that God is not pleased, but all the while pointing us to the eternal hope we have in his promises. And that takes us back to the word, the sure word of God. Now, those promises are sure, but we don't fully experience them yet, right? There's a lot of hymns in the old hymn books. Oh, that will be glory. You wake up in the morning and you go to work and it's tough. That doesn't feel like glory. But there is a day coming. Oh, that will be glory. There is a day coming when every knee will bow before the Lord Jesus. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. That's future. Between now and then, you lament. Patience is trusting that God is working out his plans and that his timing for all of these things is perfect. God isn't reactive. 
Right? He doesn't see things in the world and, and being turned upside down and, and see his people suffering and say, Ooh, well, I didn't see that one coming. Well, we have to trust that God ordains all things. They're part of the plan. Inasmuch as he has determined to rescue you and mark you as his child because your name had been written in his book before the foundations of the earth, there are others whose names are written in the book who he is bringing into his family. And when he has done all of that, then the end will come. How long, O Lord? We've got to be patient. And we should be patient because the Lord has been patient with us. We quoted this together earlier in the service. Second Peter, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We are patient because God has been patient with us. And God has a book with the names in it. And in his time, he will draw every last one of them to himself. And then the end will come. I realize living in this part of the world, a fair amount of freedom and life is good, mostly. We might not be in prison like Joseph physically. There are things that we lament. And as believers, we are waiting for that day when every knee will bow, when every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. That day when we, with that chorus of voices in all creation, gloriously and delightedly declare his lordship. But while we wait for that day, we'll have to contend with uncertainties and the fickleness of life and people. While we wait for that day, we must be anchored in the word of God. The scriptures, God who is the interpreter of all things. And be patient. Let's pray. Father, um, we thank you that you have been patient with us. You're not slow in fulfilling your promise. Thank you that you have opened our eyes to salvation in your Son. Thank you that you have, through your word, revealed to us a future glory that we may hope in, knowing that a hope that comes from you is ironclad, will happen. So Lord, keep us faithful to that day. Keep us anchored in your word and keep us patient so that Christ may be glorified in our lives and among us. We pray in his name. Amen.